Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Understanding genre. And the gist of the principle was this. If we want to understand what an author is saying, part of that is being sensitive to how that author has chosen to say it. Because to communicate effectively, authors write in particular ways within particular genres or or types of literature to accomplish particular purposes. So again, to understand what's being said through a book like Jonah, we're expected to be sensitive to how it's being said which became especially important when we got to the shift between the historical narrative of chapter 1 and the Hebrew poetry of chapter 2. If you haven't been here, chapter 1 of Jonah tells of God's command for him to head east, to preach against his enemies. But Jonah doesn't want to, so instead he hops on a boat and heads west. And even when God sends a storm to threaten Jonah's life, Jonah would rather sink to the bottom of the sea than turn around. Yet when Jonah's thrown overboard, rather than sink, he is swallowed by a fish. That's the story. That's the narrative. And after three days, we're told he prays in the form of this prayer, this poem. That's where we're picking up today in Jonah chapter 2. And we're going to begin by reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open there to Jonah chapter 2 and follow along with me as I read. This is God's word. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we focus our attention today on Jonah's prayer, it is our prayer, it's my prayer that that you would work inside our hearts, that by your grace you would change us from the inside out. 
and that by your grace, we wouldn't get in the way. That we would let you be God and every one of us be your servant. In the name of the one who did that first and did that best and did that on our behalf, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, there is a prayer that was popularized in the mid-1900s that many of you will be familiar with, and it goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. How many have heard that before? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. It was a a prayer written by the neo-Orthodox theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who the Times called the greatest Protestant theologian in America since Jonathan Edwards. It was a a, a prayer subsequently uh, adopted by Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope that's not the reason you know it. But it's also a prayer that since has been adapted by many others. However, these adaptations sometimes seem to stray from the author's original intent. Here's a few examples. A man once prayed, God, grant me the strength to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and forgiveness when I finally snap. Similarly, someone prayed, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept stupid people for who they are, the courage to to maintain my self-control, and the wisdom to know that if I don't, I'll go to jail. In one of their cartoons, Calvin once told Hobbes his prayer is for the strength to change what I can, the inability to accept what I can't, and the incapacity to know the difference. Just a few more. A woman once prayed, God, grant me the serenity to accept the man I cannot change, the courage to change him when I can. And the wisdom to know that he's not just trying to tick me off. (laughs) And the next day, she revised her prayer. God, give me enough coffee to change the things that need to change. And enough change to make that coffee really large. (laughs) Probably not what Niebuhr originally had in mind, but helpful insofar as through their adaptation, you not only hear what someone says, but hear what they're saying through it. And, as a bonus, hear what it says about them. Did you get that? That that when someone adopts a prayer and adapts that prayer for their own ends, you not only hear what that person says, but what they're saying through it. And ultimately, what their prayer says about them. And today, we have a similar opportunity as we listen into this prayer 
in Jonah chapter 2 because we're going to find that Jonah's prayer is an adapted prayer, a borrowed prayer in which we're able to to hear first what Jonah says, second, what Jonah's saying, and third, hear what Jonah's prayer says about him. And it's going to get a little uncomfortable. Let me just warn you about that up front. It's going to get a little uncomfortable because we don't have many of these. The Bible doesn't put out there a lot of backwards prayers, a lot of bankrupt prayers. But just follow me, because I think that the the writer of this book has something very important to teach us through it. Rather than dive into a new principle today, we're going to simply circle back to this idea of understanding genre in a little bit, because this is really the heart of that. First, let's just look at what Jonah says. Many have recognized that Jonah's prayer actually follows a a pretty typical pattern of what's been called Thanksgiving Psalms, a a number of which are present in the book of Psalms. And, And like those, Jonah begins with the bottom line. Listen again to verse 2. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. This is his his summary of the situation. I called, you answered. I cried, you heard my voice. This is that parallelism we talked about two weeks ago. I called, I cried. You answered, you heard. And and, and notice that there's a, a definite sense in which deliverance for Jonah has already come. Even though Jonah is still in the in the belly of the fish which is remarkable enough in and of itself. Maybe explains why it took three days for Jonah to pray. Because being, being tossed off a ship, I, I don't know if you'd immediately make the connection that the fish that just swallowed you is in fact sent to save you. That rather than just prolong death, this was actually God's provision for life. Because as as bad as things are, God has a knack for using the things in life we like the least, the things we'd least expect to have any redemptive value. God has a knack for using the bad for our good, like the sickness that derails life. The loss of a job that that, that keeps you humble. The the loss of a relationship that keeps you dependent. From bad to worse. Thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish. And yet, and yet, now it's it's dark and dank, foul and filthy, confined and cramped. And yet, this is God's means to God's end. And three days in, Jonah seems to come to that very conclusion. I called, you answered. I cried, you heard my voice. That's the bottom line. Which leads into a recounting of the crisis from which he was delivered. Just like so many of the the Thanksgiving Psalms of the book of Psalms. He speaks in verse 3 of being cast into the deep. 
into the sea, surrounded by the flood, passed over by the waves, piling up the imagery as he goes, so much so that you almost have to relive the experience with him, that, 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 that you almost find yourself choking on those very waters. And while his, his life is, is slipping away, this, this apparently very out-of-place statement, look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. What confidence for one who, who, who first fled from God that, that now he'll return to God. Again, he says, the waters closed in, the deep surrounded, weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. Such vivid description. But again, though, though there he sank, he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Hear the contrast? This is that parallelism again, but, but now rather than restating one sentiment in the next, here the two halves are contrasted. I went down. You brought me up. Yet Jonah's not content to leave it there because he wants to emphasize one side of this equation above the other. For good or ill, I'm not saying either. Just listen. After wrapping us up in his experience of God's grace, the note that he lets hang is of the fact that his prayer preceded his deliverance. His prayer preceded his deliverance. So he says in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Which means that this psalm of thanksgiving, this prayer of thanksgiving, isn't so much thanksgiving that God is a God who saves, as good as that is, but that God is a God who hears. And like so many psalms of thanksgiving, not, not crying out to be heard, but, but thanking God that he's been heard. Jonah's prayer doesn't end with what God's already done but with what Jonah vows to someday do. This is the final part of what Jonah says. He contrasts those who serve gods who don't hear, idols, forsaking steadfast love with himself, who, verse 9, with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is what Jonah says. That God is a God who hears. That he's a guy God's heard. And so he'll be heard once again, giving thanks once more. This is first what Jonah says. But second, what's Jonah saying? What's Jonah saying? And at the heart of it, he seems to be saying in this prayer that God's rescue rested on his request. 
God's rescue rested on his request. That God's patience had passed until Jonah prayed. That he asked first and God answered second. But that doesn't sound quite right. And I'm not trying to get into the theological question of how this works behind the scenes. Of the relationship between God's patience and our prayers. And and all the, the quandaries and theological conundrums that you can find yourself in trying to figure God out apart from what we're told in the pages of Scripture. All I'm trying to do is is be faithful to the text. All we're trying to do is stay on the line. Follow the story. And to know that Jonah's summary of the situation doesn't quite fit. Because it may have been that the case that, that sinking to the bottom of the sea, Jonah had a change of heart. It could have happened. But from what we're told in chapter 1, it doesn't seem like Jonah cries out at all. It simply says that Jonah was thrown overboard and that the Lord appointed the great fish to swallow him. It says nothing of his crying out. In fact, the narrative seems to suggest the opposite. And this is stronger reason seems to suggest the opposite that Jonah intended to go tight lipped to his watery grave, that he was quite ready to sink. That it was Jonah who fled God without discussion. That amidst the the storm, everyone else was calling on their gods while Jonah refused to call on his. That he wouldn't even admit that he had a God until he was singled out by Lot. And even then, that he, he chose the grave rather than turn back to the one he freely admitted he was running from. But my skepticism about Jonah's crying out is deepened because of what else Jonah seems to be saying. That not only did God rescue, God's rescue rest on Jonah's request, but that he was the righteous one that God was supposed to rescue. Whoa. Remember, I said that Jonah's prayer here is an adapted prayer in that it not only shares its form with the Psalms of the Old Testament, but but has been placed, uh, pieced together from them. If you have those little letters in your Bible, you can find uh, in the middle column or at the bottom of the page the parallel texts of what you're reading, what are called cross-references, if you You haven't been around a bit. And and you'll notice that here, much of those are found in the Psalms. But the language is so similar at points that it seems Jonah didn't write this as a fresh reflection on God's grace, but pieced it together from prayers he was already familiar with and would have been as as a prophet of God. God grant me, right, the serenity to accept stupid people for who they are. It's not an original. It's adapted. And when you see which psalms Jonah wove into his, 
the whole picture of what he's praying for is flipped upside down. Let me just draw your attention to two of them. There's seven or eight, most of which come from the pen of David, something Jonah would have had access to, whether the book of Psalms was compiled by then or not, or what form it was in. Let me draw your attention to just two. Psalm uh, 31 is one of them, where David is running from his enemies. It's a common theme in the book of Psalms. And this is what it says in, in Psalm 31. In you, Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Incline your ear. Rescue me speedily. Later, you take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. Into your hand I commit my spirit. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. Hear the echo? But I trust in the Lord. And then this, blessed is the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas when I cried to you for help. Chased by enemies? Besieged in a city? When? The real kicker, though, is maybe the psalm that Jonah opens with and uses also to close, which which frames Jonah's prayer. And follow me. comes from Psalm 3. It's the first of the Psalms of David. And so in the book of Psalms, it, it introduces us to this beloved king. The title, though, if, if you were to turn there, almost alarmingly uh, alerts you to the fact that David is already on the run, surprisingly, from his own son, Absalom. David had reigned in Jerusalem for nearly 30 years at this point. Now his son caps off uh, seven years of trouble with a full-on coup. And this is what David writes. I'll read it in its entirety. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Salah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And this is where Jonah begins. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Salah. David goes on, I I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Salah an entirely appropriate psalm for a king who was driven away from his kingdom. For one who's putting his hope in the one who declared him to be the king. Trusting in the the word of God. But an entirely inappropriate psalm for a prophet who fled from the presence of the Lord and placed himself above God's word. Because while Jonah says 
very many true things about God and, and what God does and, and what God's done. What he's saying through that isn't all it's cracked up to be. Because he's misrepresenting his place in that. Like every politician, whether Republican or Democrat, that takes the stand and blames all the current mess on the guy who came before and takes all the credit whenever there's credit to be taken. After all, who's Jonah's enemies? That's what all the Psalms he quotes from are about. Fleeing from my enemies, oppressed by my enemies, surrounded by my enemies, chased out of God's presence by my enemies. But who are they? We haven't gotten to the Ninevites yet. Saw them on the horizon, but they haven't done anything yet, especially not in this story. The sailors? They're the ones who who throw Jonah overboard. Yet in his prayer, what does he say? Verse 3, you cast me into the deep. Your waves and your billows passed over me. It's not that he's come to some, some, some realization of the sovereignty of God. Yeah, it was the sailors, but, but it's you, God. I know it's you. No. Jonah's blaming God. So that looking back at the Psalms he quotes, it becomes apparent that Jonah holds himself even more righteous than God. So well right for you to answer my cry and rescue me at my request. Because you're the one who drove me from your sight in the first place. But now things are working like they should. And for that I'll be thankful. That when I called, you answered. When I cried, you heard my voice. And while I did not listen to you, at least we're on the right track because you're now listening to me. Whoa. What Jonah says, what Jonah's saying. Finally, what it says about Jonah. That nothing has really changed. That the heart of the problem is still the heart of Jonah. After all, what's all the talk about the temple? I shall look upon your holy temple again. My my prayer came to you in your holy temple. This is a guy who served in the northern kingdom. They didn't even go to the temple. Surely that's what he's talking about too when he he talks of sacrificing and, and praying, paying what he vowed. But God didn't tell Jonah to go to the temple. He told him to go to Nineveh. And he didn't ask for his sacrifice. He asks for obedience. Yet the heart of the problem is still the problem of Jonah's heart. 
So that even after God tells Jonah to go to the Ninevite idolaters, Jonah still has the audacity to remind God in his own prayer, in the middle of his own thanksgiving for deliverance, to remind God in verse 8 that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. And even behind Jonah's final quote from, from Psalm Three, the the climactic declaration, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Even here, there is an underhanded echo of the closing phrase that Jonah doesn't quote. Do you remember it? David says in Psalm 3, Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And the Ninevites aren't them. So that while salvation belongs to the Lord, It becomes our job to to tell God who he may and may not save because the heart of the problem is the problem of a human heart that will not let God be God. So do you see how understanding genre changes the way we understand the passage? The fact that that authors communicate in particular ways within particular genres in order to accomplish particular purposes. And that to understand what an author is saying, we're expected to be sensitive to how the author has said it. There's there's some follow-up questions if you you want to dig deeper into that yourselves. This is is a little different than if you're just looking at it, looking for the theological truth in everything. Because this poem, this poetry is meant to get us into the heart. It's written from the heart for the heart. And yet it's not to get us into the heart of God. But something that the author is using to show us more of the heartlessness of Jonah. There may be many true things that Jonah says, but why he's saying it and what he's after is far from where we ought to be. The question is why. To tell us about things about God that we might not otherwise know? Is that what the poem is written for? That salvation belongs to the Lord, that we wouldn't find that somewhere else? That's not why this is here. It's not here to give us a prayer, to pray that the next time we're in a fish. There are better prayers in the Bible that you can pray the next time you're in a fish. This is not the one, especially if you land in the fish for the same reasons Jonah did. No, the poetry here is because the poetry speaks again from the heart to the heart. 
to get us not into the heart of God directly at least, but into the heartlessness of Jonah. Because as much as the narrator of this book takes us to places we could not otherwise go, like, like into the belly of the fish, he invites us in to, to hear what we never otherwise would have heard. He, he leaves us to pass judgment on Jonah ourselves. He doesn't tell us what to think of Jonah. He simply allows us to listen in and pass judgment for ourselves. And the only hint of what's going on in Jonah's heart is this prayer found in what Jonah says for himself. So we're invited to listen as Jonah prays with all the beauty of this ultimately bankrupt prayer. And seeing Jonah for who he is, hearing Jonah's prayer, not only for what he says, but for what he's saying through it, and for what it says about him, the author is able to elicit in us a visceral reaction. An instinctive, uncontrolled, cannot be ignored, gut-deep response in our souls which as far as I can tell is exactly what he's after. A friend of mine was given an assignment uh, once in a film class to do just that, to to put together a three-minute film to elicit from his audience a visceral reaction, a visceral response. Uh, So what he made was a video of a mouse that he dropped into an empty bathtub. And the mouse was on one side of the bathtub, and on the other was a mouse trap with a little piece of cheese on it. And the video was of this mouse getting the scent of the cheese and wandering around, scurrying ever closer, hair-raisingly close, till the screen blocked out. But the audio continued of this scurrying mouse. Continued. Continued until snap. That's what this prayer is meant to do to you. To turn your stomach inside out at the thought of it. To remind you of all the similar prayers you've prayed. And to make you want to vomit. After all that's already happened, that after all that's already happened, we still have the capacity to spit in the face of the God to whom we are so desperately indebted. Which is why just to confirm that for you, which is why when the author expects you to be heaving, that's exactly what the Lord has the fish do. Because though Jonah wouldn't listen to God, he wouldn't listen to God's word, the fish would. And what does God say? Vomit him out. 
ever turn you the wrong way when you read that as a child? It's exactly what it sounds like. This word is not used otherwise. There are other words that God could have used, the author could have used, for suggesting that that the fish delivered Jonah onto dry land, or put Jonah back on dry land, placed him where he was supposed to be. And yet here, this is exactly what it sounds like and is God's response through God's fish to the prayer of God's prophet. And it's about all that can be done after a prayer like this. Not because of what Jonah says, but because of what he's saying through it and because of what it says about him. Let me leave you with two lessons from this prayer of Jonah. First, let me leave you with a lesson about using psalms, using the psalms as a pattern for prayer. That to use the psalms faithfully as the basis for our personal prayers, and that's, that's in part what they're meant to be. Especially when we're in a specific situation and, and looking for a specific psalm to speak to us, a specific sp- psalm to speak for us, we would do well to make sure we begin where the psalm begins. To, to, to look for psalms where the author begins in a similar situation. It's like finding yourself on the map at the mall. Here you are. Because Jonah was not the king who had been incorrectly kicked out of his kingdom. Better it would have been to to go to a psalm of repentance, to to Psalm 6 or or 32 or 38, to Psalm 51 or 102 or 130 or 143, all of which are conspicuously absent from the list Jonah's quoting from. There is no I'm sorry. When at this point in the story you expect that's all there is left to say. We would do well when we take up the Bible songbook for ourselves to look for psalms that begin where we are. And hopefully, you'll go where the psalms want to lead you. Second, let me leave you with a lesson about God and how what one rabbi calls this recalcitrant prayer of this recalcitrant prophet magnifies the grace of our redeeming God. I don't know what can be said from this particular passage about the relationship between our prayers and God's patience, between our requests and God's rescue. But but I can say with confidence that we have no hope apart from a grace we do not deserve and we have not earned and we cannot secure no matter how loud we cry or how much of the Bible we throw back in God's face. And yet that grace continues to be extended to us, not least in the person and work and continued work of Jesus.
So let God be God. And let him decide how wide his mercy is and who he'll show mercy to and the son that he'll show mercy through. Because it's God we're so desperately indebted to. And it's God we need the most. So let God be God. May each of us be his servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that it would be so. I pray that your grace would so transform us that we would reserve no rights for ourselves, no rights to dictate to you what we deserve or what no one else deserves besides us. I pray that we would simply bask in the beauty of all that you've done and and reflect that in our prayers. Repentance for our falling short. Thanksgiving for you closing the gap and petition that all those around us would know your grace for themselves. In the name of the one, I pray that we'd pray more like. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H Bible dot O-R-G.